Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that women become irrelevant as as they age. We appreciate your support. Join our Aging Reimagined circle at womenover70.com or promote your book in Books by Women and invite us to speak to your organization. And today we're very happy to be talking with Phyllis Walden, age 75 from Berwyn, Illinois. Phyllis embodies lifelong learning with a commitment to action. After earning a doctorate in philosophy in 1972, Phyllis became active in women's studies and the women's movement, taught and mentored non-traditional and adult students in progressive college degree programs, and in the final chapter of her professional career, served as Dean of Adult and Continuing Education at a community college. Phyllis chose early retirement at age 57 because she longed for new learning adventures. She joined a close friend on adoption journeys to China and Peru. And during the pandemic, Phyllis has continued to travel virtually through online programs. She's an active volunteer. Currently, Phyllis serves as a docent with the Field Museum and as a tutor in ESL and she served on library and other community boards. Phyllis nourishes her reflective spirit through reading, creative writing, and daily journal writing. I've been Phyllis's colleague and friend for over 35 years, and I'm so pleased to welcome you, Phyllis, to Women Over 70. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, You know, Phyllis, you identify rightly so as a a lifelong learner, and Mm -hmm. I would be great if you could give us some examples of the the variety of contexts and the the, the content that you've that you've uh, pursued for your learning learning adventures. Okay. Uh, well, for I started my formal education uh, post high school journey at Stevens College, and the very first year I was there. Um, the term lifelong learning was introduced to me and they were already just beginning the move from a two-year school to a four-year college. And so I was engaged and I I went all four years and was engaged very deliberately in the process of creating that new kind of curriculum at an innovative college. Um, And I think, One of the most striking uh, memories I have is being in graduate school and in the final days of completing my dissertation. And I was just kind of taking a break and from writing and wandering around in the stacks and philosophy. And I pulled off a a book entitled uh, The Second Sex. Hmm. And I started uh, browsing through it and really became immediately angry that I hadn't known about this book before. Mm. And was very, I was just so aware at that moment that, well, you know, I'm gonna finish this degree and embark on what I hope will be a successful teaching career, but already I have to reconstruct what I know here. And uh, so that was, that was, uh, and that's happened many times over the years, so it's nothing new now. But at the time, it was, oh, what's going on here? Did you, um, so I'll just 
put words in your mouth, which may not be correct, but when you did you reconstruct philosophy from a more of a feminist perspective? Well, uh, you know, I started uh, I started questioning uh, from a feminist perspective, and uh, as I said, I was in the final stages of writing my dissertation, and I was already an activist. I was involved in the Viet anti-war activities. I had organized um, colloquia at Stevens on uh, on women's issues, and this was in the mid '60s. Uh, but um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly over 70. I'm losing my train of thought. It was about reconstructing or re approaching philosophy from a... But I was, um, but I started considering, you know, right then just what I was doing. And my dissertation was already being edited and I was editing mm -hmm. and working on getting it ready. Uh, and one thing I did is I decided that if the referent were not clearly male, I would use she throughout my dissertation <laughs> to refer to the philosopher. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was kind of Radical. a first step. <laughs> and then within a year after, within a few months after finishing my dissertation, um, I was uh, in my first teaching job and there were several new uh, recently hired women faculty. This was in the early 70s when there was a push to get women faculty. And uh, I was part of a group um, that started the first women's studies class at that uh, institution. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember, uh, and I was also involved in a, a women's philosophy group, a regional group, and I wrote an essay on Plato's cave, questioning whether we really had to get out of the cave. And I used some of the imagery of, you know, women, women were seen as dark and mysterious and men were seen as enlightened. And I just played around with the imagery of the cave. Um, so I got started really looking at um, how deeply embedded uh, uh, male patriarchal perspective was in the structure of philosophy. And that kind of continue, continues. Mm. And so that's that's been uh, woven through your teaching and I yeah, think your teaching um, and, mentoring. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell us about, um, well, there's a lot of things I would like to, to have you tell us about. Mm -hmm. The, um, let's, Let's jump over a little bit to your working or not working with your friendship with a friend, a friend of well over 30 years and how you have created a co-created a family. Mm -hmm. Maybe okay. Well, uh, first of all, I'm a both and person and I have my family of origin. That's very important to me. Uh, but I was also in ended up here in Chicago, the Chicago area with no relatives nearby. Um, and a, a friend of mine was, uh, was in the process of adopting a, a child, a baby. And uh, uh, she asked me if I would be an aunt. And of course I said, yes. And she introduced me to a variety of people that were part of this family that she was 
creating for this child. She would be a single mother and um, and we became close friends and uh, and that has uh, certainly enriched enriched me. She later uh, she adopted one child from Peru and then later a child from China. Um, and in fact, I'm in touch with those two girls almost daily now. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this has given me a, a real um, experience experience of, of being involved in children on a daily basis. And I wasn't that involved in, in a daily basis with my nephews as they were growing up, although I saw them frequently and traveled with them and, and they're central to my life. Um, but the 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 uh, issue of being a, a parenting figure and and I'm called Tia and that that name uh, was Spanish for aunt, is Spanish for aunt and uh, it's much easier for children to pronounce than Phyllis. <laughs> so um, uh, all of my nieces now nieces and nephews and great great nieces and nephews call me Tia oh, and I and I, I've listened I've thought about the role of aunt a lot uh, over the years and especially since I've retired and had more time to travel and be with some of both my chosen family and my birth family um, that you know an aunt has a very special role in a family I think and I can be a an ad, a trusted adult, uh, but I don't have to be the the disciplinarian. I can be the listener. Mm-hmm. I can be the person that cheers them on um, when they're really taking risks and and still try to be there and and help them when they stumble. Um, and I think you know that's that's kind of the family role of mentoring that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um I did in my professional life but uh I had a recent experience with one of my nephews who was uh leaving a marriage and because he had decided that he needed to live as a gay man and I was the first family member that he called Mm -hmm. and we had um you know just some some really meaningful this was during the pandemic, so it was all on Zoom and a lot of uh, thinking through and helping him sort through and reassuring that, you know, people, I think all of us have trouble accepting that we make the best decisions we can at whatever life stage we are and what we know. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that as I become older and and have a chance to talk with some of my younger family members, that's that's an important thing to be able to share with them. And mm-hmm. you know, well, I did some crazy things too, and I I, I stumbled, and this is how I handled it, and mm-hmm. this is a change I had to make. And I'm I'm curious about um, you, you mentioned that the the t- two children that are in your life on a daily basis uh, were originally from Peru and China. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what have you noticed or learned about 
being part part of a uh, cross cultural family and and how how the to what extent those the children's cultures were brought into to um, that this family system. Well, there was. Uh... I think we've we've really tried to make sure that they have access to all sorts of information and perspectives on their culture. Uh, you know, as as we were as they were growing up, uh, Chinese New Year was always a big festival at our house. Um, in fact, even during the pandemic, we we did a Zoom Chinese New Year <laughs> greetings with each other, um, and we've. Uh, incorporated certainly the the food and history and uh, a culture of of the places that they come from mm -hmm. um and in in one case we did go back to peru and um uh, one of the girls was was able to uh, meet and interact and get to know her birth family mm -hmm. and her uh uh, uh, half siblings. And in fact, I think she still uh, occasionally corresponds with them on through email and social media. Um, and it's also, you know, it's also given me insight into the complexity of being a child that's adopted from another culture. Uh, and in one case, the, the young woman from Peru, uh, within the last few years, found out the name of her father mm. and also uh, found out when he passed away during COVID. Oh. And uh, he had had no interest in being in touch with her. And I think that was kind of hurtful. And, and um, you know, that's, these are just things that come up. Mm -hmm. And Annie's from the little girl from China, um, as far as we know, she will not ever be able to identify who her birth family, who mm -hmm. birth parents are. Uh, she was left on the hospital steps. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're just uh, very different experiences. Yeah. And uh, from what my, the families in my birth, birth family are all kind of, you know, normal Caucasian families. <laughs> So so-called normal. Yeah, I understand. And so that that's really enriched me to to be part of that and to also see the kind of choices you make in a family that is of mixed backgrounds, uh, but also raised in in a more middle class context and. Mm -hmm. I know both girls really struggle with, you know, am I Chinese, am I Chinese or am I, I um, Hispanic or, you know, I grew up in this, this white household. And, and mm -hmm. so it's just very complex. And uh, yeah. I know, especially during the pandemic, it's the first time I've been aware of the, of the Chinese uh, woman being uh, uh disturbed by the racism that she's seen. Oh, yeah. She didn't so seem to experience that growing up in the kind of family we had. I mean, because mm -hmm. this, this mixed family had, had people of all races, Blacks, Whites, Hispanic. Uh, 
and just a real mix and gay and straight and the whole <laughs> gamut. We're yeah. a rainbow family, but and you definitely are a rainbow family. Mm-hmm. So Phyllis, um, tell us why did you retire at age 57? Which is um, as we would say is kind of early, early. It retirement. was early. Uh, it was really I I was finding um administering uh in a, and I I didn't particularly enjoy administration. I got so tired of of petty academic politics. And I was just wanting to move on and I didn't, I couldn't even figure out what kind of job I would like to find next step. And I thought, well, and I figured out that I could retire. I had a decent health, I'd have decent health care and I would have enough to be able to live comfortably. Um, it wasn't easy the first few years, but, um, but I wasn't. You know, I, I could make make my house payments and make my car payments, so that was that was fine. Um, but I also wanted wanted time to um, to get back to things that really mattered, and it got to the point that there was one week in the school the the institution where I taught that we had three presidents <laughs> in one week. In one week, yes. Oh my. And, uh, and that's another story, but it was just the kind of it was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back. So I took my mm-hmm. early retirement papers to the personnel <laughs> office, and, and you know, essentially, I'm I'm out of here in six months. So uh, very courageous also, act, a desperate but, and courageous act. But yes. I, I really, uh, but I'd been thinking about it uh, longer. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that just spur of the moment but mm-hmm. that was kind of the okay I've had enough of this mm-hmm. uh, but I had I come from a family where people don't live long I mean both mm-hmm. my parents died in their mid-60s and um, my dad uh, I think they had one year of retirement together mm-hmm. and I just, uh, I knew that there were things I wanted to do. I wanted to travel. I wanted to, uh, to just, I wanted to relax and enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And, and um, by career at that point, I wasn't really enjoying. What drew you to working with, uh, as a docent at the Field Museum? Well, one of the things that I did, I, I, I before I retired, I had taken a, uh, I took a class in creative writing at the college where I was having all this this terrible uh, experience <laughs> of dealing with three presidents. But I took a class in creative writing and met met made some good friends in that class, and we created a little writing group. Um, and one of the the members of that group worked at the Field Museum, and she she'd invite us to go, and we'd go down and and uh, uh, just visit various exhibits and and so I was aware of the field museum and when when I retired she said oh you'll have to come and be a docent and I said well the first year or so I don't want to plan anything specific I'm going to kind of let things emerge and see what happens and uh, 
So I, the second, about a year after I retired, we went to Peru. That's when we went to Peru to take mm-hmm. the, the goddaughter back to visit her family. And uh, I had the real joy of taking her to Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we took a side trip together and, and just ha- had a great time doing that. And um I got back and I kept saying, oh, there's a Machu Picchu exhibit coming to the Field Museum. And so I called and tried to get and wanted to be trained as a docent for that since I'd just been there. Well, I was too late for that, but they signed me up anyway. And I became, I started becoming, uh, doing various exhibits there. And I have uh, become a fairly uh, expert dinosaur docent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is so unlike everything I'd done before, but it was uh, one of the things that uh, really got, I, I became interested in it. I mm-hmm. love doing the variety of exhibits that they have there. You know, I've worked in exhibits as uh, as diverse as Jacqueline and Kennedy and Darwin, and now I'm doing the Jurassic Oceans mm. exhibit. So there's kind of a constant uh, opportunity to learn something new mm-hmm. and to help um, translate that and help visitors um, connect with the various exhibits that we have. And I, I imagine that then it's the a wide age range, for also children, wide, adults, wide older age adults. Range. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh, uh-huh. And I oh. also, I work in the Evolving Planet um, <sighs> exhibit uh often usually uh, as part of the dinosaur exhibit and the zoo exhibit but i just you know i have a weekly reminder of the four billion year story of life mm-hmm. on earth mm-hmm. and just how really really short our time is yes yes and just how it's just by chance that we're here at all. (laughs) Well said. Well said. (laughs) So I, I I like that perspective. Mm -hmm. And so now during the pandemic, you found another way to travel. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, I, uh, I had gone on several uh, traditional road scholar trip, which used to be elder hostel. And it's an organization that specializes in, travel for older adults. Um, and I no- I noticed once once you go on a trip, you get endless emails from them and I've never unsubscribed and I'm glad I don't. But so they started offering some like some free lectures during the the pandemic and mm-hmm. and I enjoyed some of those. And then they they started offering some um, virtual trips. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the pandemic, my friend Jane and I did decide that that we would live here in my house together. We, we have our own separate spaces, but because her daughter uh, was working in retail, uh, it wasn't safe for her to to for them to be together. So um, my friend had had lived in France for. A couple of months during her uh, college years 
And she had always said she wanted to go back to Provence. Well, there was a virtual um, trip uh, on Provence. So I signed us up for that. And, and we did that um, during the early days in the January or February of 2021. And we just kind of took it like we're going to be away for a week. Um, <laughs> we, uh, um, we checked out. We got all the books, of course, and you know we're both readers and got got did all those preparations. We decided we would eat French food for a week, and the Sunday before the program started, we went went to a, a florist and got some flowers so that we'd have flowers around, and you know just do as much as we could to make that uh, more than just sitting at the computer for two or three hours a day. Mm-hmm. And that was just a great time. The, um, the, the content was good. Um, some of the virtual stuff that they're able to do is just amazing. Um, there was one uh, day where they were, we were going on a tour of one of the of a village, and it was just like we were following somebody in, mm-hmm. in virtual reality. <laughs> um, and then uh, later I took a... a a course, another virtual course called Back to Broadway. And it was on a kind of musical comedy and are the history of musicals Mm. in the United States. And uh, I took that one because one of the resource people had done the New York, done a New York trip uh, before when you could really travel. And I liked the resource people and he's an expert on uh, uh, the art scene in New York, and I and that was a wonderful experience also. And each night we saw they'd arranged for us to be able to stream a musical and mm-hmm. talk about it the next day. And then I'm looking forward to uh, in May. I'm doing one on uh, world religions, mm-hmm. and I've had the uh, dis- I've discovered that one of the textbooks is a book that I read in my freshman my first philosophy class. And, uh, and uh, I have my old underlined copy, but the print's so so little, I can't read it. So I've ordered a bigger print copy. <laughs> I'm really impressed with this, so, Phyllis, that you, uh, that you, you uh, channeled the, the uh, internet to be able to continue to travel. Yeah. And and to use it that way and to immerse yourself. So it wasn't just watching, it was an immersion. Yeah. And, yeah. and what a terrific thing to do. I'm sure you're inspiring many of our listeners with that concept. Well, I think one of the one of the uh, positives that came out of the uh, uh, pandemic. I'm talking as if it's over. Obviously, it's not. But right. Um, but was for me was learning to do to use Zoom and learning to connect more. And I I'm certainly I don't see myself as a techie at all. Um, but one of the most amazing things that I I discovered was what public libraries are doing. And. Um, I was taking an on uh, an in-person yoga class at my local library at the beginning of the pandemic, and it had been going on for a couple of years. And 
a month into the pandemic, the instructor called and said that that she was going to offer it on Zoom and the library would be sponsoring it. Mm. And our book clubs continued online. And now there are so many local libraries doing different courses for for seniors on Zoom that you know, and I, I'm not, I'm not a great person for doing exercise, but I can do a yoga class or a, some sort of senior movement class from a local library any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes. So, Phyllis, before um, my goodness, before we wrap up, I, I just, I'd like to just say that you are one of the most reflective people I know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're an avid reader. You're a creative writer. Uh, I think you write in, do write in your journal daily. Mm-hmm. And um, tell us about about that. About what what uh, what that does for you. That, oh, that. okay. Um, I think it helps. It helps keep me focused. Um, it's my daily writing. It's something, it's one of those things that I miss if I don't do it. Mm. Um, a lot of times I just start out the morning while the coffee's perking and just kind of say, right here I am. And I see what comes out. And sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's what I want to do today. Um, but it's a real grounding experience for me. Um, and I have no basis in research to say this, but I think it also really helps memory mm-hmm. and helps because uh, sometimes I'll write about what I've been reading or thinking about or um, uh, what I saw on TV last night or a movie that I want to see and why. And just it, it whatever whatever gets down on paper kind of gels more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, you don't know the impact that that's going to have. And, and uh, uh, I know I've taught journalism, I, I, journal, journal writing uh, before, and I taught it at DePaul for a number of years. And I don't know if I mentioned this, Catherine, to you, but um, last December I had a, a student that I hadn't heard from probably since about 1992 or 93. Mm. And she ran across her, her material from my class and my phone number was still, was on it. And I, my phone number hadn't changed and she called me and she reminded me of an exercise that I'd had, had them do in class. And it's one I've done over and over again, where you just make a list of uh, 100 things that you need to do or want to do. And she said, I looked over that list and, you know, I realized, you know, in 1992, I'd written down that I wanted to live in France. And then she said, and, and five years, and five years ago, I was in France for two years on my, with my job. And she just was going through that list and (laughs) saying, I wrote this list, (laughs) this class magic. And so I just think that that um, reflective writing and thinking about what your life is uh, helps you stay grounded and mm-hmm. 
and ready to move on to the next day. Gail, do you have any questions? Anything you'd like to bring up that you haven't yet? <laughs> no, I'm just fascinated by everything you're saying, Phyllis. <laughs> How about you, Phyllis? Anything you'd like to leave us with? Um, the listeners with in terms of how you think about aging or advice you might offer? Well, um, I think that, you know, the, the only choice I'm aware of about aging is, um, is how you approach it. And I've just kind of approached it as it's a, another learning project. And uh, <laughs> uh, what do I need to know? Uh, uh, you know about this health. You know now it's a lot of it's about health issues, but mm -hmm. but also uh, managing life and in, in a complex world, and mm -hmm. just how try to approach each each issue that seems to come at me with. Well, okay, uh, here we go again. <laughs> uh, what's what's lurking around here, and what do I need to fathom from this? And, mm -hmm move on. That's a wonderful attitude to have. Yes. Another learning project. Uh -huh. Yes. Like it's that. helpful. <laughs> thank you. Well, Phyllis, thank you so much for talking with us today and You're sharing. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. And listeners, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. Visit our website, womenover70.com, to access all of our episodes and easily search by name or category. Join us on the first Tuesday of each month to enjoy programming beyond the podcast, hosted by Aging Reimagined Circle. Membership information is on our website, womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. 